The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Father in heaven, this prayer is not some just perfunctory transition into the sermon time. We, we come before you now and we confess that we need your help. I need your help. I can't lift Jesus as high as I ought to. And so Holy Spirit, lift him high this morning. And be faithful to your promise that as Jesus is lifted high, you will draw all men to him. So we pray, open our eyes that may, we may, may behold wondrous things out of your word. We pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you got to see a little bit through that video. But coming up on October 31st is the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation happened about 506 years ago. In the single sentence summary of that is that God used a man named Martin Luther, a man just like us, to help uncover the truths of the gospel which laid at that time dormant and hidden by the Catholic Church. And so while the Catholic Church at that time was preaching the necessity of works for salvation and needing to buy indulgences to limit your time in purgatory, which, by the way, purgatory is not a biblical idea. But, but, but in, during that time when they were preaching that, God used Martin Luther to recover the simple and the powerful truths of the gospel. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the truths of scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. And so as we study our passage this morning, and I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, either with your physical Bible or with your phone. But this morning we will see the basis, the object the means, the source, and the purpose of our salvation. So you don't have to jot that down. It's fast. We'll, we'll go through it line by line. But we're going to base our points off of the five solas. Again, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. So with that being said, let's look at the first point, the basis of our salvation. And that is, our salvation is by grace Alone. Notice with me in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. But the key word we're going to look at, for salvation. And so maybe a quick definition before we continue. What, what is salvation, right? We, we throw that word around a lot, but what is salvation? Maybe the most concise way that I could put it is that salvation involves two key aspects. Salvation is a deliverance from our sin. And salvation is a restoration to God's presence. Salvation is a deliverance from our sin and a restoration to back to God's presence. So there's a negative and a positive component to salvation. We're saved from something. We're saved from our sin and we're saved to someone. And that is God. But before we can understand salvation by grace alone, I think it's helpful for us to ask another question. And that is, why is salvation necessary why is salvation necessary well well, the bible teaches that ever since the fall of adam and eve when they ushered sin into the world due to their disobedience ever since that day every person who has ever lived that includes me and you we are sinners by 
nature. And we're spiritually dead and we are under God's judgment for our sin. And so if that is true and it is, then the Bible teaches that we don't merely need a second chance at life. We don't just need to clean up our act a little bit and start living a morally right life. No, we don't need moral renovation. We need spiritual regeneration. The Bible doesn't teach that we are generally good people who just need a little bit of help along the way. No, it says that we are spiritually dead people condemned in our sin. And so rack your brain a little bit. Go back with me a few months ago in uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, I'm going to reference Ephesians a lot intentionally this morning to jog your memory. But Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul said this there. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the devil. And then he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, giving no thought to God as our king. And it says this, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But then the story doesn't end there, church. The two greatest words in all of the Bible follows those verses. That despite who we are, despite the fact that we have continually disregarded God as our creator, that we have disobeyed God as the good lawgiver, that we have rebelled against God as our king, and that we have dis- despite the fact that we have dismissed God away as the righteous judge, despite all of that, in Ephesians chapter four, uh, 2, verse 4, it says this, in spite of who we are, church, but God, but God. This is who you are, right? Deserving of nothing good from God. This is who we are, dead in our sins. This is who we are, children of wrath. This is who we are, enemies of God. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And Paul ends it by saying, by grace, you have been saved. How, how, how many of you have been ever been to a funeral where, where you know, the casket is in the front and, and all of a sudden the lid pops open. The person sits up and he says, or he or she says, thank you, everyone, for coming. I really appreciate the love and support that you're showing me at this moment. Right. How many of you, if you have, uh, I, I'm concerned. Right. It, that, no, that doesn't happen. Right. Dead people can't choose to live again. They must be brought to life by back to life by someone else. And listen, church, our spiritual condition, apart from Jesus Christ, it is the same as that person lying in the coffin. And only, only the power of God's grace can bring us back to spiritual life. Listen, there is nothing you could ever do to contribute to your salvation. And there aren't enough good works or religious duties that you could do to earn your salvation from God. No, salvation, it is by grace. And it is by grace alone. The Apostle Paul would put it this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. You can't get it by yourself. Not a result of works, but according to his grace. Listen, while you can't earn God's grace, we can't earn God's favor by what we do. At the same time, it is something that God freely gives to all who come to him. 
Again, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one says this in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And this is key church, which he has lavished upon us. God, through his son, Jesus, through what he accomplished through his life, his death, his resurrection, he now lavishes the riches of his grace upon his people. In commenting on this verse, Charles Spurgeon, he once said, we we have to calculate, right, normal people, right, with normal means. We have to calculate our incomes to see whether we may, we, we can or we can't spend, give much to charity, right? But those who have great riches, they give and they don't have to calculate, right? They don't have to, okay, how much can we give uh, to the church this week? You know, okay, this, people who are affluent, very wealthy, they don't have to calculate. They just give. They give without thought, without thought. Listen, church, we are great sinners. But even so, Jesus, he is a greater savior and he is ready to lavish you with his grace of forgiveness of sins and his grace of eternal life. If you would come to him today, God, he is never, he, our God, he is never at risk of exhausting his storehouses of grace and pardoning sinners. His grace is inexhaustible. It is unlimited and it is free for all who would come to him today. It's free for us because it cost Jesus his life. Salvation, it is by grace alone. But, but our passage this morning, it shows us that, that while the basis of our salvation is grace alone, the object, the center, the focus of our salvation, church, it is Christ alone. Let, let's see that and, and we'll get there. So hang with me. Uh, I'm not just importing it into the text. It, it, it's there. So help, hang with me. At, at the end of verse 16, the apostle Paul says that the, the gospel is the, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he says this to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is speaking, Paul is referring to the time period when salvation has come. And so salvation came first to the Jewish people, beginning with the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But now God has fulfilled his thousands year old promise that he gave to Abraham, that through one of his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God fulfilled his promise by sending his son, Jesus, who was of the lineage of Abraham. And, and, okay, so that's, okay, you might be saying, it says there also to the Greek, well, that's all Greek to me. What does that mean, right? It means this, that there has only and always been one salvation from God. From the very beginning, throughout the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and still today, salvation has always always been by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone in the messiah alone i i shared this story before but we were we were playing outside uh one sunday afternoon and one of the neighborhood girls a sweet girl she came over a six-year-old girl came over and she was playing with ruby and noah and isaiah and they're just uh they're riding bikes i think and so we're i was asking her did you go to church today yes i went to church you know and uh, so we we're talking about what she learned, and she just said, she said this. She said, oh, I love Jesus. She, but she said this. She said, I can't remember his last name. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I think when we, when we think of that word Christ, right, a lot of times we don't give thought to what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? Well, well Christ, it's, it's a Greek word that just means the Messiah. So you're like, all right, you're not helping me out at all. What does Messiah mean? Messiah the Messiah is, the, is God's promised king to save God's people from their sins. The Messiah is God's promised king to save God's people from 
their sins. And so the Jewish people in the Old Testament, they were saved by grace through their faith that God would provide a coming Messiah. And now, church, all people are saved by grace through faith, believing in the Messiah that has come, Jesus our Lord. And so now if you're reading through the Old Testament, right, and some of, if you're on our two-year Bible reading plan, you have read through the book of Leviticus. You've trudged through it, maybe, some of you. But in Leviticus 16, it talks about an annual event that was instituted by the Lord for the people of Israel. And it was called the Day of Atonement. And so on this day, the high priest, he would go into the holy place. And he would, as he went into the holy place, he would take with him a male goat. And with one hand, he would place, he would place his, his, one of his hands on the top of the goat. And with the other hand, knife in hand, he would slit the throat of the goat. He would sacrifice the goat. And so in this sacrificial act, the high priest, what he was doing by placing his hand on the goat's head was symbolically placing the sins of Israel onto this goat. And then the animal was killed as a substitute for the people of Israel. In other words, church, judgment fell on the animal so that God's forgiveness could flow to his people. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. From the very beginning, what did God tell Adam and Eve? If you disobey against me, what? Death will follow, right? And so from the very beginning, the wages of sin is death. Judgment fell on the animal so that forgiveness could fall on God's people. Well, over a thousand years later, when a prophet of God saw Jesus walking, John the Baptist, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because you see, church, when Jesus went to the cross, he, he served both as the high priest who went into the most holy place and as the sacrifice himself. On the cross, Jesus offered up the perfect and the final sacrifice, the shedding of his blood. But, you know, on the Day of Atonement, right, it was a symbolic act that the high priest did. The cross of Christ differed in this way. There was no symbolism taking place on the cross. On the cross, Jesus endured the actual wrath of God for you and for me. He paid the penalty for our sins so that church judgment fell on Jesus so that God's forgiveness could flow to you and to me. But not only did Jesus take our sins away in the gospel, he also gives us something we didn't have before. Notice in verse 17 with me what the Apostle Paul says. He, he says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. We'll pick up on that last part. But notice that phrase, righteousness of God. So through his death on the cross, church, not only does Jesus take your sin away, he also offers to you his perfect righteousness. Such that now, if you are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, God looks at you as though you are perfectly righteous because you are, if you're in Christ. In his life, Jesus, he achieved the perfect righteousness. The, and what does that mean, perfect righteousness? It just means the perfect, perfect record of right doing. Jesus achieved perfect righteousness that was required from all of us. And so on the cross, Jesus took all our debit of sin, and through the cross, now church, he is able to offer us all his credit of righteousness. The Bible says in Colossians 2, he canceled the record of debt that we owed. He did so by nailing it to the cross. And so I hope you're seeing 
Jesus, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I hope you sing that is, it is Christ and it is in Christ alone who can accomplish your salvation. He alone, he is the object, the center, the focus of your salvation because he alone is the perfect sacrifice for sinners. And so I know you, were, you thought you were coming to a church service this morning, but we've got a quick math lesson for us to do. We've got a little gospel math that we've got to get through this morning. And the first equation we're going to work through is this. Jesus plus something else equals nothing. Jesus plus something else equals nothing. Even today, right, the Catholic Church and other people, other denominations and other people, other religions, they maintain that is, it is Jesus plus your works that equals salvation. But listen, the Bible teaches that we can add nothing to our own salvation because even our best re- religious deeds, they are tainted with sin. And the Bible says they're like dirty, filthy rags before our holy God. And so this morning, maybe if you're trusting in a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of yourself, then listen, that will gain you nothing. Jesus plus something else equals nothing. But here's the other equation to our gospel math. And that is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Acts, 4, uh, Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if you remember in Acts chapter 16, the, the apostle Paul was in jail and, and uh, you know, the, the Philippian jailer, he asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And what was Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer? Do this, do this, do this, do this. No, what, what was his response? Believe, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed. The amazing truth that Christ's righteousness now can become our own righteousness. Church, this is the greatest news in all the world because we know who we are in and of ourselves, right? We know that we are sinners. We know that who we are. And if we were to stand before God in our own strength, by our own doing, we would have no hope whatsoever of getting into heaven. But the beauty of the imputed righteousness of Jesus, Jesus offering his righteousness to us, the beautiful reality of that truth is that we can have full confidence that when we stand before God one day and he asks us, he asks us why should I let you into heaven? Our answer will be not, not because I am good, but because your son has done it all for me. We are saved by grace alone in Christ alone. But maybe a question we need to ask is, how do we receive Jesus's righteousness? We receive it through faith alone. And so we'll see this morning, the means of our salvation is faith alone. This story is probably familiar for many of you, but in Matthew chapter 9, there's a story of this woman, right, who suffered an illness for 12 years. She, she went to Luke's account, said, Luke was a doctor, and so he got into the details. He said she went to all kinds of different doctors, but no one, no one could cure her of her disease. But then one day, this woman heard that Jesus was passing through her town. And she thought, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. In other words, she knew that there wasn't anything magical or powerful about her hand as it touched Jesus No, she knew if only I could get to Jesus and lay hold of him, he can heal me. 
Listen, church, this is what faith is. It is simply the helpless sinner's hand reaching out to lay hold of Jesus, the Savior. Tim Keller, he, he's with the Lord now, but he once shared this helpful illustration. Uh, imagine if you are on a high cliff and, and you're, as you're peering over, all of a sudden, you know, the rock gives way and you start falling down the cliff. And as you're falling, you're scrambling for any and everything that you could find to keep you from falling to your death. And as you're doing that, right beside you, there is a branch sticking out of the cliff. It's your only hope, and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. And so the question is, how can this branch then save you? Well, if you had, you know, your in your intellectual thoughts, right? And you're thinking, you know, I, I think this branch could support me. You're doing the physics calculations, you know, force of gravity, you know, and all that. And, you know, you're, you're thinking through, I think this could save me, but you don't actually reach out and grab it. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. You're headed down. But as you're, fall, as you're falling, even if your mind is filled with doubts, your uncertainty, whether the branch could hold you or not, but you still reach out and grab it anyway. Listen, right? You will be saved. Why? Because it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatal. There are many beliefs today, many people of faith who don't enter into a church at one point, but there are many systems of belief today and many people placing their faith in them, whether it is the American dream, materialism, new age spiritualism, there are many systems of belief. You can have strong faith, but if your object is weak, it will prove fatal for you. But listen, church, even a weak faith in a strong branch saves. Listen, it is not ultimately the strength of your faith that will save you. Faith is just the means by which you lay hold of Christ, the object of your salvation. Because the moment you lay hold of Christ, you will find, you will find that his grip of you is so much stronger than your grip of him. Throughout life, there are going to be times, right, church? Any, any, any amens? You don't have to amen, but there are going to be times when your hand will slip, right? There are going to be times when, when your faith is strong and great. And there are going to be other times in life when your faith is dim. But listen, listen, his grip of you will never waver. Because Jesus has said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those who Jesus saves, he will keep to the very end. And so faith, church, faith is simply reaching out and taking hold of the outstretched arms of Jesus to you. We we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then we also see here in our passage in verse 17, the source of our salvation, and that is scripture alone. You'll notice What Paul says at the end, he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is a quotation from Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. And so Paul didn't ultimately ground his argument in human experience and in various case studies and clinical trials or empirical evidence. No, Paul's validation was scripture itself. It is only in the Bible where God's way of salvation is revealed for, our, for us and where God's will is shown for us. Because from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible has God for its author, salvation for its end, and Jesus Christ right at the center. 
Indeed, all of scripture is meant to prepare us for and to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this idea of scripture alone is the belief that because scripture is God's inspired word, because he is the author, it is only then the inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. And so listen, if if there is anything that I say that differs with the truth of God's word, you hold God's word in highest, highest authority. It is God's word alone that has ultimate sway and influence and authority for our lives. And so maybe, maybe, right, this is all heady. So let's personalize this just a little bit. There are going to be times in our lives, right? There are going to be times when our actions brush up against the conduct of our when, when our actions brush up against the truths and commands of Scripture, right? When our, when our conduct is not in line with God's word. And, and so when you are confronted with this contradiction, how will you respond? How will you respond? Do you respond by explaining away your situation? Uh, you know, well, you just don't understand what this person did to me. Do, do you respond by minimizing the authority of God's word for your life? Or is your response to repent? And to submit to his truth. Remember, remember the devil's first temptation. The devil's first temptation in the Garden of Eden. It was rooted in trying to undermine the truthfulness and the authority of God's word. What did did the, the snake say? Did God really say? Did God really say? We, we are to yield our lives, church, to the inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word of God. Because it is in it that God has revealed his plan of salvation and his will for us. So when Satan comes at your way and he says, he tempts you to say, Does, did God really say that? You stand on the truth and you say, yes, he did. And I will submit my life to its truth. We hold that in the truth of scripture alone, that it is the final authority for our lives. Then finally, we'll look at this morning, the purpose of our salvation, the purpose of our salvation, church, and that is God's glory alone. In, in Paul's letter to the Roman church, the, the structure is such that the, he, Paul takes the first 11 chapters really to expound and to explain the truth of the gospel, much like as we walk through the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters. In the first three chapters, Paul is just giving us gospel doctrine after gospel doctrine after gospel doctrine. And then in the second half of the letter, right, he then explains in light of the truth of the gospel, this is how we are to live. And so the book of Romans is structured in the same way. Romans 1 through 11, gospel doctrine. Romans 12 through 16, gospel application, how we are to live our lives in light of its truth. And so Paul ends in Romans chapter 11, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, Paul says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And Paul's, if salvation is by grace alone, then it is for the glory of God alone. In other words, maybe to put it another way, if God does all the work in our salvation, then God is to get all the credit. There is no room for self-boasting in the Christian life. Any good in you, church, any good in you is all because of God's grace. And so maybe, right, if, if something, right, you're, you're trying to love your neighbor well and they, they say, oh, man, thank you so much. You're such a good person. I, I, I've heard that before. I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard that before, right? What should trigger our mind is Matthew five seventeen. 
which I'm blanking. Let, let your light shine that you may, uh, oh, you are the light of the world. It's, uh, let me, let me just go there. Uh, you know, I, I, that's why I'm manuscript. I don't trust my mind. Uh, so, uh, let me, let me get there. I should, I, I know it, but, uh, my brain is telling me. Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, period. Right? No. So that they may see your good works and then what? And give glory to your father in heaven. And so anytime someone says, you're such a good person. Wow, thank you so much. You, you, you deflect that back to your heavenly father saying, no, any good in me. It's all because of God's grace. This is who I was before I met Jesus, but this is who he is making in me to be now. Can I share with you how he has changed my life? So you see there, there's a gospel opportunity right there if you have eyes to see. Any good in us, church, is all because of God's grace. And so when you have become gripped with God's grace, and when you see that Christ is now everything to you, then your natural response is to declare and worship that great hymn, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. And so listen, church, to apply it for us today, as God continues to work in our church, and as Lord willing, he brings growth, Listen, may our confession ever and always be not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because church, listen, this is his work. It's not my work. It's not your work. This is the Lord's work, what he is doing in our church. It's his doing. And so may our hearts beat forever for the glory of his great name. In conclusion, and it will be a little bit longer conclusion, so just preparing you for that. Uh, in conclusion, we're going to look at the final two phrases in Paul's, in these two verses that Paul writes. He begins with, for I am not ashamed. Right? And so sometimes, and maybe you've heard sermons like this, but sometimes when I've heard this passage preached before, some of the preachers, they, they place the emphasis on, don't be ashamed, right? Don't be ashamed for Jesus, right? But, but I think it's good for us to place the emphasis on where Paul places the emphasis. His focus isn't, We need to be more unashamed. No, Paul places the emphasis on the reason why he's not unashamed, why he's not ashamed. And so I'm just giving you a warning. This is intentionally a bad illustration. So just giving you a forewarning there. But imagine you're on your wedding day, right? You're you're, you're standing in the front and what should be a day of rejoicing, right? You're standing there ashamed. You're standing at the front with your head ducked down. You're dejected and not making eye contact with anyone. And some of you are saying, yeah, this is really bad. This doesn't make any sense. But that's the whole point. Does it make sense that you would be acting that way on your wedding day? Not at all, right? It's unthinkable. Because that kind of behavior, it doesn't fit the occasion, right? No, on your wedding day, you're elated. You're unashamed of whatever emotional response might take place. I remember when Emily was walking down the aisle, I was, I was crying. But I didn't care because my eyes were fixed on the beauty of my bride on the glory of the moment in the future marriage that we were about to enter into. So it is with the Apostle Paul. For Paul, the admonition and the focus isn't don't be ashamed. This isn't a command. No, I think what Paul is trying to communicate to us today is that it's unthinkable for the Christian to be ashamed of the gospel when all of our focus and when all that ultimately matters in our lives is beholding the beauty of our bridegroom the Lord Jesus Christ and experiencing the glory of his salvation. 
For Paul, it was unthinkable that he would ever be ashamed of the gospel because he knew that it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who would believe. It changed his life in being a murderous persecutor of the church and now being a fervent proclaimer of the gospel. And the power of the gospel can change any of our lives as well. And so since Paul said, I'm not ashamed, verses 14 through 15, he says, because of that truth, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. And so an unashamedness in the gospel, it leads us then to proclaim the gospel to others. When we behold the beauty of Jesus, when we remember the joy of our salvation, then it fuels us to go. So may we then go this week to our neighborhoods, to our family members, to our workplaces, and, to, and we, may we pray for all the unreached people groups in our world today with full conviction that as we go proclaiming this gospel, it is powerful, it is effective, and it alone is the message of, of salvation for anyone who would believe. No, no, no self-help message can set people free from their sin. No podcaster, no psychologist, no author, and maybe some of you don't even know what this one is, but uh, so let it just fly over your head. But no TED Talk speaker is powerful enough to deliver people from their bondage and captivity to sin. But listen, church, Jesus can. And Jesus does. So may it then be Jesus that we confess. May it be Jesus that we proclaim as the author, the accomplisher, the sustainer, and the perfecter of our salvation. And then listen, church, I want to encourage you. May we then never tire in prayer and may we daily grow in faith and full confidence that God will be faithful to his promise to save sinners. This gospel, this good news that Jesus saves, it has changed you and me. Amen. It has changed our lives and it can do the very same for our family and and friends as well. So may we then not be ashamed. But rather, may our hearts be full of faith that Jesus is still able to do the impossible today, that he is still able to raise the spiritually dead, and that he is able to give eternal life. With that being said, I want to end this morning with that final phrase we haven't looked at yet. Paul says, the gospel is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes. And so it would be foolish for me just to assume that everyone here is trusting already in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you've heard some things about the Bible over the years. And and maybe you're still doing your best to live a good moral life. Maybe, as we talked about earlier, you still have your self-righteousness firmly in the grip of your hands. But to everyone in this room, I ask again the question, how confident are you? That when you die, and we will all die one day unless the Lord Jesus returns, we will all die one day. How confident are you that you will spend an eternity with him in heaven? When, when, he, when you stand before him one day and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What will your response be? Will you say, well, here, Lord, look, 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 at, look at all the things that I did. Isn't that amazing? All the good, religious, righteous things that I did. And what did Jesus say? I will declare to you, depart from me. I never you or listen will you trust in your own strength or will you trust in the perfect righteousness of jesus christ today this morning right now jesus graciously is offering his righteousness to you as a free gift if you would receive it by faith let's pray thank you for listening to today's sermon 
If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.